Well, welcome everybody. Welcome back to, or welcome for the first time to Bucket Theology, the inelegant name for our study of the things of God. And uh, some of you are coming back, some of you are here for the first time. It's great to have you. Uh, my hope is that tonight uh, we can grow in our understanding of the true and living God. Uh, and so what we're going to do is we're going to review a little bit what we did last week. Then I'm going to ask the question, what is this? Don't answer yet. And uh, and then, then we're going to launch into today's topic, which is the doctrine of God and creation. And that's, we were kind of did our introduction last time and we looked at religion, revelation, and scripture. And we're going to look actually at God himself and look at creation. And there should be enough tonight to get me in trouble with every one of you. I should be able to get something wrong or something you disagree with with every one of you. So so we, we will try to achieve that or uh, try to do something different. I'm not sure. But I'm going to pray because it's important when we do this study, when we're studying the things of God, that that we have to acknowledge this is not, this is not just studying um, a philosophy textbook. This is not uh, reading a, a manual for CPR. Uh, this, is, this is not just something like that. This is actually communicating with the true and living God. There's a whole table over here, uh, if you like. There's a whole table here, full, like completely empty, waiting for welcome people. Uh, and I'm going to pray, and we'll get started. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give you praise and thanks this evening that we can speak to you knowing that you have first spoken. You have spoken creation into existence, and even in these last days, you have spoken to us by your Son, the one in whom there is salvation, Jesus Christ our Lord. And we ask that you would help us, even as we call you Father, that you would bring us along with your fatherly care so that your own Spirit would fill us. Your spirit would expand our capacities to know you, that your spirit would help us to be conformed in our character, in our inner being, in our hearts, conformed to Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son. Father, we ask that you would be honored and glorified through our discussions. We pray that we'd be able to have fun tonight. We also ask, Lord, that you would really receive all praise, even as we see that everything is coming from you. And so help us tonight, help us to enjoy ourselves, even as we are enjoying you first. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, last time we, 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 uh, last time we talked, I know Jared's up here, but you can actually sit at this table. I don't spit quite so far. You don't have to sit there, but there is room there. Um, the last time, well, actually, now this is how we do classroom stuff. Someone want to give me a quick review of what we did last Wednesday. Nice and loud. Who wants to be brave and just 
give me a couple of the topics that we dealt with. See if anybody learned anything. Any brave souls? Talking about natural revelation. Uh, revelation. Yeah, so Alan wasn't even here, but he, he listened to it on, online. And so, yeah, natural revelation, special revelation. So, so the idea that God is hidden and he chooses to reveal himself in certain ways. He chooses to, as it were, as it were, uncover himself and reveal certain things that he wants to reveal. And he reveals certain things through the natural world uh, that we can see in testimony. Why do people drive to the mountains on the weekend and they see the mountains and they think, wow, how majestic, how glorious are these mountains? And it speaks to something transcendent or really someone transcendent. And, and so there's that naturally. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> um, I got a great wife. Yeah. Sorry to embarrass you. <laughs> Didn't mean to quite do it like that. Um, so there's natural revelation. Then there's special revelation, whereby specifically we want to think about God reveals himself in speech, in understandable words, and in his holy word, what we call the holy scriptures, which is inscripturated special revelation. And so how do you know specifically this God, the details about this God? Well, you have to know it through his word. So when people say, yeah, there might be a God, but how could you ever know him? It's beyond, he's beyond everything. Yeah, well, is he powerful enough? to make himself known. And the illustration we used last time was how parents, parents with all of their wisdom and intelligence and power are able to make themselves known to their children. And their children can say, oh, I didn't know. And yet the parents know, I have made myself very clear. And you do know what you're supposed to do or not do, right? And all the kids are cringing at that point. So, yeah, so there's there's revelation. We also looked at just the concept of religion. Is that the that human beings are made for worship? And I use the illustration of the Calgary Stampede. Why do crowds go and watch horses pulling wagons around the track and cheering on and hoping for their favored chuck wagon to cross the finish line. Why? Because they're actually worshiping creatures. Because we all want to participate in glory, in majesty. And, and so then we're oriented to these things. And that's why there's sports. And that's why there's rankings of praise. There's celebrities. There's all these different things. Because we're worshiping beings. And the question is, the question always is, whom shall we worship? Whom shall we worship? Uh, brings to mind just a quick anecdote. I was thinking about Eric Alexander. Uh, he went to be of the Lord about two years ago, I think. Uh, he's a Scottish Presbyterian pastor. I met him on a couple of occasions. Uh, and he preached, I don't know, he preached like Lloyd-Jones. Like he was, he was a friend. He knew Lloyd-Jones. And he told the story about being in a, in a worship service or hearing about a worship service, I should say. He wasn't there. 
And the worship leaders say, okay, everybody, let's just empty our minds and let's just worship. And Alexander said, at that point, somebody needed to stand up and say, whom, whom shall we worship? Whom? There must be an object of worship. Worship is directed toward someone. And all people are worshiping all the time. It's just the question is, whom are they worshiping? There's no neutrality in it. So that's kind of a little bit what, what we looked at last time. And one of the things that goes along with this is, if you've got the PDF, we've got the books coming, I think, is then Louis Burkhoff, a Dutch Reformed theologian, has this, has this summary of Christian doctrine that we're using that uh, is a step below what was supposed to be for the high school students. Uh, but that's what we're going to use because that's where we are at in the 21st century. That's kind of the scale we all need and that I need. Uh, so so if, if you've been going along, you can then read these sections after I teach, and then you can kind of reinforce the things with Burkhoff's great ability to be concise and to kind of pack in a lot in a, just a few words. So that's review. Any questions on review that way? We, I open for questions a little bit, but I also kind of charge along. There'll be maybe a little bit of group work today, so it's not going to be just straight lecture. But um, if you really are urgent with a question, you can ask. But I do kind of uh, charge along. So any, any questions on the review on religion, revelation, and scripture? It's difficult to just go over cursory if you weren't here. Okay. We are going to switch now to this weird diagram. Does anybody know what this is? Is that uh, God is not, or Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God? Okay, so, so Calvin, right? Yes, yeah, that's that you kind of spoiled, you kind of got to the answer too soon, but yeah, that's exactly what it is. I was hoping for a few wrong answers first. <laughs> Oh, sorry. Is that the rotary piston and wang lens? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, exactly. That, that's what I'm looking for, man. That's exactly what I'm looking for. That kind of thing. Yeah. So this this diagram goes back uh, very early, and. And so, then, which God is then God in the middle. Now, the Father is God, and the Spirit is God, and the Son is God. But the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Father is not the Spirit. So this became uh, a diagram that I was just telling Jared, just in reading about it, uh, it's pretty early and through the Middle Ages, guys would put it on their, on, knights would put it on their shield. And, and it's a way of distinguishing the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, and yet at the same time, affirming that the Father is God, the Spirit is God, the Son is God. Now, 
The only problem with this, even though this articulates aspects of the Trinity, we could say, yet even this diagram is not really true. It's not fully true. So it's a teaching tool. It's something we can use, but it's not fully true. Because what it gives the impression is, is that if we're talking about God, God is made up of three parts. And if God is made up of three parts, or God takes on three faces, well then that those are heretical ideas. God is not made up of parts. Nor does God switch and put on a father face and then a son face and then a spirit face. So there's names for these errors. But that's the problem. It's always the challenge when we're thinking about God. So although I think this is a useful tool, it's still not sufficient to articulate the truths of the Trinity. So I'm kind of using it both to teach and as a reminder that we're kind of treading on holy ground as we enter into talking about God. Now, if you're, then, then the result is as soon as we talk about the Trinity, we talk about the doctrine of God, you might be like, I'm scared. I'm scared. I don't want to say anything. I definitely don't want to raise my hand because the temptation is you can say things that are wrong. You can have wrong ideas. And so what happens is, we end up being kind of agnostic. We think God's there. He's, he, I like him, but I don't really know much about him. And I don't really want to say much about him because I can't really know. And I don't know much. And so we kind of drift along. We'll say God's this way and God's that way. But actually, we don't know. And yet the case is, as we saw already in the review, is God knowable? Can he be known? Well, the first thing we want to see is that God God, there is this essence, this essence. And I'll start with that. So I'm actually going to take this off. That was just the opening, just to get you going. First word is essence. So now, as is now what I'm doing all the time, all illustrations I use are relating to Crystal and I's trip to France. So... When we're in France, in Provence, as they say, in Provencial, uh, they have all kinds of perfume. And they, they grow the plants, and then they boil them. And they boil them down to their essence. And then they put the essence in a bottle, and they overcharge for it. But that... That is kind of like, what, what happens when you take all the parts away that could be taken away? What's left is the essence. Now, again, that's, that's a human analogy. It's not even sufficient to talk about with respect to God. But theologians over the years have used the term essence to characterize the godness of God. And so... The first thing is, and you should have it on your sheet there, is that God is spirit. Turn to John chapter 4. Let's pick up in verse 23. John chapter 4, verse 23. 
you know, this is the encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus is kind of back and forth with this woman as she she has all kinds of religious ideas. She has views about God. She has all kinds of religious data that Jesus has to sift through. And he says in verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So God is spirit. Now, what does that what does that do for us then? Well, if, if God is spirit, then that stands against God as merely a psychological projection. If you're at work and somebody says, Oh, yeah, well, you're one of those, one of those God people, one of those sky pilots, and they really get into it, they'll say, Oh, yeah, that's just your psychological projection, something that you need psychologically. You need to have a God figure. Well, no, that's against God is spirit. God, it also goes against the idea that God is myth. God is spirit. He's true and real, but he, he's not a myth. But at the same time, it goes against any kind of naturalism or materialism or soul naturalism. Because it necessitates belief not only in the natural, but the supernatural. To say God is spirit. It's against material categories. You know, okay, how do you put God in a lab? And how, how do you, you know, that's, that's where it breaks down. How do you put him, how do you put him in the in the in the boiling pot and boil him down to his essence well you can't right so the material categories don't work so god is spirit we're getting at his essence uh god is personal john 14 latter part of verse 9 says he that has seen me has seen the father how do you say, show us the Father? Here, there's it's a very personal engagement. Very personal. So this is a God who is not remote. He is not unconcerned. He's not unknowable. Uh, some of the, in some of the studies I'm doing for the doctoral work, I'm looking a lot at the 19th century and the rise of these deists and these deists well they all they all said yeah god's there but but he's impersonal he's almost like this irrational for or this rational force out there that's impersonal you know it's kind of like god is like the law of gravity well no that's not right god's personal he can be known he's not remote he he is concerned he is knowable uh, further to that, he's perfect. He's perfect, and infinitely so. He's perfect. So he's a, he's spirit, he's personal, he's perfect. Exodus 15, verse 11. Who is like you, O Jehovah among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? So that's Exodus 15, 11. So comparatively, comparatively, who can compare? 
uh, for my own, in my own experience, it's been one of the key things that, especially in times of doubt, uh, especially as a young man, I would compare the claims of other gods and other religions. And when they stack up against the claims and the identity of who God is, they just don't compete. The, the true God is incomparable. Who is like you? There's no one else. You can stack up Allah or Vishnu or Buddha or whoever it is. They just, they don't cut it. Psalm 147 verse 5. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. Infinite. Where's in pop culture, where have you heard about infinity? Where's, what's that? Marvel movies, what? Yeah, the Infinity Stones, right? I'm I'm looking at my son's kind of looking for some help here. <laughs> right? But maybe I shouldn't even be admitting to watching the Marvel movies, depends. Um but but this is this is the thing is that there's this he has this infinity. It, he's infinitely perfect. Not like the Marvel movies with its with all of its flaws. The Marvel movies, I think, are the most most contemporary example of of what we have with the old pagan gods. The the pagan gods, they, they could be temporarily divine. They they would make human-like mistakes. That's a whole Marvel shtick, isn't it? You know, you got these very humanized, flawed superheroes. Uh, God's infinitely perfect. He's not limited by time and space. There is no Gotterdammerung, you know, the twilight of the gods. If you know Norse mythology and the the thought that there's this kind of end of it all. I think Marvel is picking up on all that stuff. This idea that there's an end of all the gods and it just all crashes. It's all disaster. It's all chaos. Because they're limited by time and space. God is infinitely perfect. He's not flawed in kind of that Greek drama style character. Ha having that character flaw. Uh, like I said, the Marvel, Marvel guys, Zeus, Jupiter... You know, Zeus, Zeus, they always seemed careless, distant. They weren't very nice people. So that's different. He's so this is this is his essence. But then getting into then uh, the fourth one is he's simple. He's simple. Now I'm just going to write down. That. Now, if I hear simple, I might think. uh you know, if I said, I said, Jared, kind of simple, man. <laughs> this might not be a compliment, right? You know, I might think you're a dummy. But but that's not what's being referred to here. It means that it's God is simple in the sense that he's not made up of component parts. He's not composed. So his perfections are one. They're simple. So this is where then you'll see sometimes people will talk about divine simplicity. And God is God is simple. He's not made up of parts. So God is not a composite God. God is not made up of Lego blocks. You don't have Lego blocks. And that's why then, then, then that, you know, 
actually that looks like Captain America, um, you know, or however you want to do it. That that diagram ends up being that we we're looking at with the Trinity. Looks, I know, looks cultic now. Um, looks weird. Uh, the problem with it is it lacks simplicity. It, it's composite. It acts as if God is made up of three pieces, Father, Son, and Spirit. That the Father is a third of God, and the Son is a third of God, and the Spirit is a third of God. That's heretical. It's false. God is God. He is simple. Uh, there's also, even just think of, think of like the gods of the East or religious concepts like yin and yang. You know, that you have to have, you know, this, this perfect balance. You have to have this perfect balance, and that's your oneness of these two halves. That's false. No, no. That's, God is not like that. He's simple. And that means his perfections are simple. They're whole. They're not broken up. They're not in pieces. And so God is described as light or life or righteousness or love. God is love. God is light. 1 John 1, 5. It's not that he's, you know, kind of, you know, God is made up of pieces of light and other things. No, it's just a straight up grammatical, syntactical statement. God is light because he's simple. His perfections are one. So that's kind of dealing with essence, the divine essence, who God is. And um, just you see there I, I, in your uh, in your handout, the other term with essence is nature. So like essence deals with the nature of God. So who God is, his nature. So that's another term. It's going to be important later on. We're going to find out. It's going to be important. Nature. You know, the divine nature. We're talking about the divine nature. We're talking about his essence. So all these, all, you know, was God kind of boiled down to be, as it were, if we could even say that. Okay? So who God is, his divine essence. So holy ground. Any questions just briefly on, on the essence before moving on? You tracking with that? Does that seem to be kind of what, you, what you've gathered? Can you see the difference between like the Marvel conception of gods, small g? Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, there are, God has names, self, his own self descriptors that are revealed in scripture. I'm actually going to, I'm not going to take a whole lot of time on the names of God because these might be ones that you're familiar with. Probably the most important one is the covenant name that God gave to Israel, which is Yahweh. Is kind of that's our that's our kind of way of trying to articulate the Hebrew letters. Yahweh or Jehovah was the the way it kind of got anglicized. Exodus chapter three, verses thirteen and fifteen, and it's a statement that says, "What's the phrase?" I am who I am. It seems kind of redundant. But but God is expressing his self-existence. 
He doesn't get his existence from somebody else, or he doesn't get it from the creation, or he, he it's not coming from somewhere else. There is no other, there's no first cause that causes God. No, he's saying, I am who I am. So it's such a powerful self-descriptor. And of course, um, if you're a new Bible reader, you'll find that in the Old Testament, when that special covenant name is used, it's how is it how is it rendered? Lord, and it is in all capitals, is how it's rendered in, in the Old Testament. So you can then you know, oh, that's actually referring specifically to the covenant name that God has revealed for, for Israel. Some other descriptors, I'm just going to go through these quickly. Uh, Jehovah Jireh, Genesis 22, 14, he's a provider. Uh, Jehovah Rapha, he's a healer, Exodus 15, 26. Jehovah Nissi, you know, he's a banner, Exodus 17, 15. Uh, Jehovah is our peace. Judges 624. Uh Psalm 23, verse 1. What's Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. shepherd. Yeah. Uh, there's many others. One of my favorites is Jer Jeremiah 23, 6. Jehovah Sid Kenyu. Sid Kenyu. Jehovah is my righteousness. Uh, and Robert Murray McShane, one of my heroes, he he wrote a he had a poem that that included this idea of Jehovah Sid Kenyu. Uh, George Whitfield preached a number of sermons on Jehovah Sid Kenyu. The Lord is my righteousness. Of course, uh, Romans eight fifteen, God is called Abba Father. Uh, Jesus is called in Revelation 22, 13, the Alpha and the Omega. Second Corinthians chapter 1 speaks of the, the Father, um, Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Uh, one of my profs said that's, that's a new covenant name for God. The Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Second Corinthians 1. So there's names of God. So again, revealing what he's like. But then again, we're getting into, okay, you got his, these names, they describe him. What about, what about attributes or let's call them characteristics, the attributes of God. Um, and this gets into the question that you get at work or in your family or at school or wherever. And, and people will make claims about God. Oh, yeah, I'm into God. God's great. I, yeah, I'm all into God. I'm all about God. There's guys talking at the at, at, in the courtyard at the Stampede Breakfast, and there's a lot of God talk going on with some of the visitors. Lots of God talk. And at, at various points, then, for me, then the question is, okay, well, you're talking lots about God. What is God like? What are some of the, what's, what are some of the characteristics of this God that you claim to know? Who is, who, what's, he, what's he like? Who is this God? And so generally, in terms of the attributes, these attributes, you have two kinds. Big word. 
I'm just going to go incommunicable and communicable. Now, communicable is easy because we know communicable because we think of communicable diseases, and that's why we wash our hands. That didn't get as big a joke as I was hoping for. Everybody's a little, you know, don't want to laugh too much about diseases. Um, but the idea of what's incommunicable, what can't be shared, what can't be shared, what can't be communicated to others, what re remains with God himself. Well, there's for Babing and others, this, this year, these are all pretty standard. Uh, he's got then four eyes of incommunicable attributes. The first is his independence. I like this that he's got at least at least three uh, words that start with the letter I. His independence. God is independent. Think about how your view of God is. Do you think that God is dependent on you? Do you think he's dependent on who's in Ottawa or who's in Washington? No, no, he's independent. He is self-existing. He, he's not... He's not looking for someone else to lean on or waiting for other events to happen. He's not needy. He's self-existent. He's independent. As well, he is immutable. He's immutable. Now that's a $50 word, to be immutable. This should all be on your sheet. Uh, he's immutable. That is, he's... He's unchanging. And, and so that means like he doesn't, he doesn't ebb and flow. He doesn't go back and forth. He doesn't, doesn't change over time. He's also infinite. We already looked at that a little bit. There's a sense in which he has no limits. You know, uh, the, the question, the question is put to God's people repeatedly. What is the house that you would build for me, even to even to David and to his descendants? You can't contain God. The idea of the temple wasn't that it could contain God. It's that he may choose to have a, a special place, a blessing there, but he can't be contained. There's a sense in which he's infinite. He has no limit. And then there's two, two parts to that. So... He's he's eternal. Well, that's in relation to time. Now, God, he's eternal in relation to time because he's outside of time. Time is a creation. He's outside of time. So he has no limits with respect to time. He's not even playing time's game. He's not even in the game. He's outside the game. He's beyond that. He is infinite in with respect to time but also he is and this is the less familiar word he is immense this doesn't mean that he's big you know that dude's immense no no it's not just that but that there are no limits within space there's not a sense in which then he's limited and there's some space beyond which god does not exist there's no limits it's it it's his immensity 
So, um, I'm, and you'll notice I'm not necessarily doing scripture proofs for all of these. That's why you've got to go to Burkoff because I, we just don't have time because we're covering lots of ground. But that's kind of the idea is even though we're not going in a granular way, we're kind of getting a broad overview, which for many of us here, it's just the first time we've even looked at these categories or these buckets. So, so that's, that's some of the incommunicable attributes. These can't be shared, right? Because uh, even if even if I'd like to be everywhere at the same time, it seems, I can't. Uh, my calendar says I can be in more than one place at once, but I just can't. Only God is immense in space. He has infinity without limits. I have limits. The last of these, of course, these incommunicable attributes is 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 that simplicity because we're made up of we're 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 composite beings we have a body and a soul we're made up of both we're not we're not just one thing and god is simple and so that differentiates him from everything else now do you see why it's hard for people to conceive of god why they need revelation because we're so different so how can we think beyond how we are and extrapolate to how god is we need god to reveal himself about the way that he is okay then there's this lovely list of the communicable communicable attributes you have there and these are lovely knowledge goodness love under love, you have grace, mercy, long-suffering, holiness. God is holy, but we, we actually are called to be holy. Right? So in that sense, there can be a communication. Righteousness. Well, God is righteous, Jehovah said, can you? But there is also a sense in which the Christian believer, as Paul said, is justified by faith alone so so there's there's that sense uh truthfulness veracity 50 dollar term well god is let god be true and every man a liar well we're to speak the truth in love right so there's a sense in which that's communicable and even sovereignty god is sovereign overall but, you know, in certain respect, in a limited sense, you're sovereign over your house and what you do at home. And you're sovereign over your little life in terms of your you, you're sovereign and compared to what other people do. Now, it's limited. It's different. But there is elements where we actually understand sovereignty. We talk about a sovereign nation or we talk about um, any these different spheres of sovereignty, maybe. Well, that's communicable. But specifically with respect to God, again, we're thinking about God. The fact that they're communicable is it's still we're looking at how they are with God, even though that these can be shared or known or experienced by people. Is then God's sovereign will. The sovereign will. And his sovereign power. power 
You don't even have to mention Calvinism or any of that stuff. You have you have then a sovereign will, and it's kind of broken down into two elements. The sovereign will is going to have his secret will and his revealed will. Again, but you, so you start seeing how the principles that we saw even last time in terms of God is God, and then he chooses to reveal things about himself, and he, there's other things he chooses not to reveal. Well, there are secret things. Deuteronomy speaks of the secret things belonging to God, but then the things that he has revealed then belong to us. And so, so these are these are then these are these components. There's a secret will, and then there's a revealed will. So what's revealed in generally you see like precepts, law, gospel. You know, so we talk about, oh, I want to do God's will. Well, I want to do what he has revealed I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to heed his precepts, his law, and believe in his gospel. He's revealed that. Do I know what's going to happen tomorrow specifically? Well, that's part of his secret will that I do not know. And so then that, that belongs to him. Then his power is then he's just omnipotent. Omnipotent. He's omnipotent. He's able to accomplish all that he pleases. So, so that's kind of then the communicable attributes. So these are, I would just say, a lot of this might be familiar to you, uh, or maybe you've heard it in a different arrangement or different emphases, that's fine. But this is a great study to just work through the different attributes to consider and think about God. Uh, and and then that's all that's all getting at then you're getting understanding his essence and then how he has revealed himself to be, what he has shown himself to be in these characteristics. Okay. So meditating on those attributes. Okay, that's that's a it's all a drink with a fire hose, but um but we're trying to get an overview. And you're trying to start being stirred to think about all these different aspects of God. Any questions on on essence or on on the attributes before we go on to something super hard? Yeah. Oh, okay. And your name, Liam. Guys, say your guys say your name so everybody knows. Yeah. Awesome. Go ahead, Liam. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so it's kind of the common. Yeah. So then we, we say, oh, okay, that, that kind of limit, but, but the issue is it's not, it's not then an absolute kind of this radical, uh, this 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 radical uh, right. What I should say is his own character is what defines him. Okay, so in terms of his character, there is no limit 
to his character that can be imposed upon him. But his character is such as we have found out that he doesn't lie. So therefore, there's going to be this not lyingness or this truthfulness that's going to be perfect, infinitely perfect. It's not as if, oh, well, there are things out there that that God, you know, that that God is limited in that he can't do. And so can is there a, a rock so big that God, you know, that God could create the rock that he can't lift and things like that. These logical absurdities. But it's it's more about infinite perfections. And the perfections are the perfections of his own character. So even the idea of setting limits, and we're saying, oh, well, you know, what about the limitation? God, you know, as you said, God would not lie. That would be a limitation on him. Well, no, it's the sense that he is perfect in all of his attributes. And so there is nothing that can be opposed upon him from the outside. He sets he sets the game. He's the one who determines the laws. He's the one who establishes. And so he is perfect in truthfulness. And when it comes to God, there is no real reckoning of something that is false because he is truly pure. There is no, there is no negation. We need negation to try to talk, especially the Trinity. We're going to talk around God. We need negation to say what God isn't in a fallen world. But God is just pure. The theologians say God is pure act. Even that, like he, it's, he, his truthfulness, it's just true. It's not even with respect to falsehood. That is, that, that's, it's not like, oh, we can find some other category outside of God to then show there's a limitation to God. It's more, it's more just absolute 100% positive, if I can put it that way. So that'd be kind of the thing. Although that's a natural question, excellent question. And that's a natural question that all of us have. And when you get into these things, I find this is why it's so great to start with kind of first principles with, with how God has revealed himself. Often the questions are coming from man's philosophy and the way we see the world. And then we're going to impose that on all religions. And then we come to Christianity and we're going to impose that on that religion. When in fact, God has said, well, I'm actually going to reveal myself and I'm going to set the terms of the game. And I'm actually playing a different game than what you're playing. It's a completely different narrative space. And then I'm actually going to then tell you how to look at my game. That's what God's doing. He's like, I'm, you know, because you can't, you can, you actually can't be in the game unless I let you in the game. You know, that's kind of how God is. And we're just like, hey, I feel like I'm on the outside. Well, he says, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to include you in my game. But it's on my terms. So really good question. There's going to be all kinds of that that you should be stirred up with. And I would just encourage you, start writing them down. Then you go to the true and living God in prayer, the one you can't see, and yet who is infinite in perfections, and start talking to him, the God who is true and who has revealed himself. But then that, oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. As a non-material being, non-material being. Uh, so, so um, 
that's the key thing. There's no materiality, but there's a being. Now, God will determine then what is that spirit. He determines in terms of his own revelation, but clearly it's not material. So that's why I say that's why then you have to get into things like in John chapter three, where where the spirit is described by analogy as wind and throughout the Bible using using wind because it's non, you know, to the to the eye, it's non-material. And yet there's it does stuff. It moves things around. There's action. There's a being there, uh, even though wind isn't personal but it's it's an analogy so non-material being that's simple okay i'm gonna move on because we got so much to cover and so many so many ways to show my ignorance um that's what this is all about actually this is me being able to show my ignorance because most of you should be able to say yeah well actually i could explain that better and i hope you can i hope you all can uh now we want to look at then the Trinity. So it's kind of like when we get into the Trinity, I ask you, okay, define the Trinity and give me three examples. Right? He's just like, oops. Right? And that's why I did I that's why I did the diagram. And uh, actually, be connected, I guess. That's why I did the diagram, because it's pretty useful for communicating a lot of things about the Trinity, and yet it still fails. It still fails. Some people think it's like a home run. It's kind of like, oh, no, it's not a home run. It's still not good enough. Um, but what do we confess in terms of the Trinity? What do we confess? We confess how many gods? Okay, great. We're, we're doing good. Okay. Is that it? What else are we confessing? Yeah. First, so we've got we've got some we've got some some pieces already there. So there's a oneness. And then this term God, then there's a second second number term, and then this descriptor, persons. So each of these components is actually what we're trying to get at. Now, what we've been looking at with essence is actually dealing with the one God component. But there's elements that have to be engaged with now with this three persons part. Go to Matthew 28. Familiar passage. It's always helpful too. Who in Matthew 28, uh, beginning of verse 18, who's who's the one speaking? Not a trick question. Jesus. Yeah. Sunday school answer. Jesus came and said to them, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So in verse 19, that's often called the baptismal formula, baptizing them. And then, then there's that phrase, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, a couple of features to see here. First is, How many, there's there's three names there, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why does it say baptizing them in the name? Did you catch that? Yeah, everybody's really smart here. Of course you did. You all know, you all saw that. That's fine. It's a single name, the one name, and yet it is then it's it's not the name Father, Son, Holy Spirit as if it's a composite compound name but it's the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit so each is considered separately and distinctly and yet they are put together these three persons in the single name and so this, so this is then helpful from just, just as one example, where then we have the one God and three persons. Now, now it's only one piece and it's only one, one text. But then we're going to get into, we've got essence. And now we're going to get into persons. The persons, distinguishing the persons, and specifically, uh, actually, let's use. I'll just, I'll just point out, just to introduce the theologians. We'll talk about essence and substance, not in terms of stuff. This is also then. Let's go persons. So just so you know. So we're, we're getting into then these categories. So essence, the godness of God. And then we get into these persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Oh, and the microphone, sorry. Um, the persons all have personal properties. And this is where, where that shield diagram is correct. Because the Father is not the Son, is not the Spirit. There is things that distinguish them. So, for example, the personal property of the Father is his paternity. So the theologian will say the Father is unbegotten. He's unbegotten. The Father begets, whereas the Son, the Son is begotten, begotten of the Father before all worlds. God so loved the world that he gave his 
only begotten son. Actually, the translations don't include begotten as much anymore. His only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. He's begotten of the father. So that's, that's the distinction of the son is his begottenness of the father. The spirit, the personal property of the spirit, the theologians will say is spiration. This fancy words, but you can get it. Paternity, filiation, and spiration. The father possesses paternity. The son possesses filiation. The spirit possesses spiration. He's proceeding from the father and the son. Now, in the West, there was a schism in the, in the West. The Western church argued that the spirit proceeded from the son and the father, not the father only. And the Eastern church, the Eastern Orthodox churches, uh, to this day do not confess that the spirit proceeds from the son. Don't have time to go into the filioque clause now. Uh, this, is a, this is all introductory. But that just gives you a hint. But these are the personal properties. Now, I give you a quote there, I think your hand up, from Greg Naz. That's what Michael Haken called him. Greg Naz. Gregory of Nazianzus. Gregory Nazianzen. And this is really helpful. It's helped me over the years. Haken introduced me to it. No sooner do I conceive of the one then I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No, no sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of him as the whole. So just to be clear, for example, is the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity. <laughs> Is the Son God? Great. They're doing really good. The Son is God. Is, is he a third of God, a part of God? Is he the Son part of God? No, he is truly God. Truly God. So there's no, there's not, you know, not part or becoming or he is God. It's, it's it's clear. So so critical. So when I think of any of the three, like the sun, for example, I think of him as the whole, Nazianza says, my eyes are filled and the greater part of what I am thinking escapes me. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest. And then this last line. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. Now, you could even really get, if you're really fussy, you could even quibble with Gregory of Nazianzus' descriptions there. But what he's trying to do is preserve, Jared and I were talking about, Jared brought up the phrase, a Trinitarian grammar. Trying to understand, there's a kind of a way to talk about the Trinity that has certain rules. You know, so, and and one of the one of the key things when it comes to the Trinity is that 
keep walking away from the light. Is that you don't want to confuse the essence and the substance. You don't want to confuse the nature and the persons. When you confuse the nature with the persons, you get into trouble. And that's always then where you have the heresy. So think about, okay, are we talking about nature? Or are we talking about the personal properties of the persons? You know, the things that distinguish them. But because if it's nature, there is no distinguishing. Right? If it's the nature of God, there's no distinguishing. God is God. There's no distinguishing. But if we're talking about the persons, the personal properties are distinguished. The Father is not the Son, is not the Spirit. And so that's what that's what then can help us as we get working through these things. So don't confuse, don't, don't use essence talk when you're talking about the substances. Don't use person's talk when you're dealing with nature. Okay, so that's kind of a that's kind of a warning, and that's been a warning to me. I've had to work through some of these issues myself because uh, it's easy to get confused about them. So that's just a handy little shorthand guide. But just you know, you understand the distinctions of the Trinity, and use the Nazianzus, you know, switch where you're focusing on the one. Yes, but I I've got to consider the three. And I'm thinking about the three. I've got to consider the one. If I'm thinking about his nature, I also have to remember his persons. If I if I think about the persons, I also have to go back and consider the divine essence of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, baptized in the one name. Okay, how's everybody doing? Okay, group work. Because everybody needs a break, needs to talk a little bit. Okay, on the back of your sheet, I think, hoping, is this right? You should have the Athanasian Creed. The Athanasian Creed. Now, Athanasian's Creed, again, make a Southern France reference crystal. Uh, this, this was thought to be attributed to Athanasius. Most scholars think it came later. Very good, but it was attributed possibly, not for sure, to Vincent of Lorenz, who is in the Lorenz, were in the French Riviera. So that's just throwing that in, uh, and or and it could also be Hilary of Poitiers. I want you at your tables. I want you to read through and discuss just what you, what you pick out in view of in view of essence. Like if you have nature and person, okay. So just take a few minutes and talk through at your table. Appoint a reader and just read it, read it to each other, and then have a few minutes talking with them. Okay.
the same words to describe different things. So one of the things you saw was, but you should be able to pick this out, is in the second paragraph, and the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the... But, but is what's he referring to? You know he's referring to the essence as we've saw, the nature. Because we're talking about not, he's saying you shouldn't divide the nature. You shouldn't divide that. Likewise, you shouldn't confound and mix these persons up. Uh, they shouldn't be mixed into a ball. So that's an example of just the lingo. Um, what are, I'm hoping that you're kind of used some of these, let's call them these, this Trinitarian grammar, this, these skills to pick some things out. What does it seem in this creed that there's concern to do? What what are some of the features that you see of how uh, how the the essence is distinguished from the persons? Can somebody give me an example? The nature distinguishing. Okay, go ahead. The idea, the idea of there being three eternities. Yeah, yeah. There's not there's not three eternities. There's not three eternals. There's one eternal. There's not three. Uh, there's not three of these, there's just one. So again, the eternity is is related to the nature or essence. So there's not three of those, there's just one. Yeah, it's really good. Something else. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, describe the Holy Ghost as proceeding. Okay. Yeah, so that's what we said before in terms of the personal property of the person of the Holy Spirit as proceeding from the Father, what it's doing there. Uh, so uh, that's uh, two, four, six, maybe about 10 lines up from the bottom in the second column. It says, uh, the Son is of the Father alone, not made, nor created, but begotten. The Holy Ghost is of the Father. That is, as it were, from the Holy Ghost is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So all of those descriptors, he's not made, the Holy Spirit's not a creature. He's not created. He's not begotten. We we confess uh, with the Apostles' Creed, you know, that the Son is, is begotten, not made. Well, he's... The, the spirit is not begotten, but proceeding. So the, the procession of the spirit is the language that has been used to describe the mission of the Holy Spirit sent not only by the Father, but sent by the Son. So that's the term proceeding, is procession, and it's the idea of a mission. And you, there can even be, some will say that, the mission of the Son is his, in his begottenness. The mission of the Spirit is in this procession. But that distinguishes the Spirit from the Son. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so then, so then that's their, that's their activity. Um, any other, one more, just, any might take a shot? Something different, maybe at the back. I'm wondering if you could 
Well, I was you got I was looking for an example before we go to a question. That's okay. Just hold on to it and I'll come to your question. One more example and then Liam, did you have an example? Okay. Just say a little louder and give your name. Jared, there's not three almighties, but one almighty. Yeah. So why is that how how is that nature and person distinction? If it was if it was person distinction, if that's talking about person, it would have or I'm going Thanks, Glenn. If that was talking about persons, it would have three. Three, three yeah, yeah. So, so what? So, yeah, that's right. So, if you had three almighties, what do you have? You've got three gods. You got tritheus. You got three almighties. You got three eternals. No, there's only one. There's only there's one one almighty. You don't have three almighties. You have three gods because it's dealing with nature. You know, essence. Okay, your question, I'll go with your question down here. Yeah, uh, there. Uh, just wondering if you could expand on what the language of the God is talking about. The God is going to be for something's happening. Yeah. We'll, we'll get into it more when we get into Christology. <clears throat> this isn't going to be big. Um, so the way the way theologians have described this to articulate what's going on is eternal generation if it's eternal there's no beginning right so there's always this begottenness for for eternity and of course humanly speaking you know i've i've begat three sons there's a beginning to all that but that's not this generation is distinct because this is an eternal generation at the same time the way god has communicated himself in terms of the person of the father the father has paternity and the father begets but the father is unbegotten the son is distinguished because he's eternally generate he's eternally uh, has has this filiation. He is begotten with the Father. So the thing is, we have language that the Lord has given us to, to try to understand these things. And then there's also language used in creation in terms of human relationship. But we are told we have to limit ourselves in terms of our speculation beyond back, going from how we understand things to be and pushing back into the mysteries of God. But eternal generation is understood to be one of the linchpin ideas in the whole trinity is is as far as how how things work as it were which isn't really even fair to even say that so yeah begottenness has this sense to us of something begun but actually that's not the point it's more about a relation a relationship that the son has to the father and actually, it's pretty relevant in terms of, you know, that that there that God would show Himself with this language of Father, that He could be known as Father, that He could be no, known as Son. 
that he could be known as spirit, that these are the descriptors according to according to the person by which he can be known. So it's an unsatisfactory answer, but to be honest, that's all I can do. And I, you know, even in heaven, I think we'll spend eternity uh, gazing upon the eternal begottenness of the son and just marveling at it. Um, but that's, that's a start. That's, that's what you got. The eternal part It's eternal. It doesn't have a start. And yet it's a generation. So it's not like our generations, but it does have a feature that we can see there is a father in a relationship to the son. Now, if we put too much weight on, oh, well, this is how fathers are to sons, and this is how sons are to fathers, that we all understand, you know, we start putting a whole bunch of human stuff onto that, then we're going too far, and we get in lots of trouble, and that's where guys in the past have gotten in trouble, and they start confusing the person's qualities related to the person and ascribing them to the essence and vice versa. So it's fair to say that these uh, descriptions of the persons of the Trinity are just really crude approximations. Well, I don't know. Yeah, crude crude approximations maybe is a crude way of putting it. I think in it, it's an accommodation, and it is the way God wants us to know him, right? So, I mean, for us, yeah, in, if you think it's crude in terms of we're down here and he's up here, yeah, and it's not an approximation in the sense that, well, it's it's exactly how God wants us to know him. So it's not an approximation that way. But in terms of way we think of it or how we can get our heads around it, well, then, yeah, it's I'm limited in terms of what I can do with that. Got to move on. Well, it's a great interplay and so yeah like you you have this diversity or these this variation of description and i would just say like this use this in your devotions like you know you want to think about god well okay we're going to think about these different these different characteristics are they attributes according to the nature the essence oh well let's let's meditate on those and recognize though but there's not three of these each and so forth so yeah so that's that's just a little exercise for you um finishing off the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal so in all things as aforesaid the unity and trinity and the trinity and unity is to be worshiped he therefore that will be saved let him thus think of the trinity and i didn't include the anathemas if you don't believe this <laughs> You can look up the original and you can see this isn't messing around. Okay. Now, um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on all on the decrees or decree. Again, if the decree is the act of God relating to will, this is another feature that... Uh, will 
is related to nature. Very important. Very important. There's not three wills. There's one will. What's the will of God? There's one will. There's not three wills. And God's not made up of parts, so there's not three composite wills going together. When it comes to will. And so that's why then, speaking of the decrees of God, which is the way that sometimes people will, theologians will talk about the decrees in variation. But really, there's only the decree. Boom. It's just, it's God's decreed will. It's all of it together. Now, we see the components of these different features in terms of how, how it plays out in the universe and among us. But that's, that's a little different than from God's perspective. Now, um, obviously, God made a decision to create. He didn't have to. He made a decision to create. He made a decision, even in terms of the fallenness of man, when Adam sinned, he made a decision to save. He didn't have to. He chose to. There is also a sense in which if he chose to save, well, then then there's inherently then those that who are under his just judgment as a result of sin, that then they are then according to this one decree, this one act. Well, then they are the term is generally understood to be reprobate. Now, I just put in there reprobation is asymmetrical. God does this, but is not weighted in equality with his initiatives to create and save, or really his initiative. Now, I'm just going to use Burkhoff just so I don't get into trouble here. But Burkhoff says this. Speaking of the decree with respect to, to saving, the election of individuals unto salvation. So God is choosing. Now, go to Matthew you, you, you don't have to go there. You can just listen. But Matthew 22, 14, you know the verse. For many are called, but few are chosen. What does it mean to choose? It's an exercise of will. Right? I choose. I, I, you know, you've heard me kind of chuckle about it. There's lots of talk about free will, but people rarely talk about God's free will. What about God's free will? And he chooses, he makes choices. So the objects of his choice are the chosen. He has chosen. He has then discriminated and set a particular attention upon some that he has not put on others. Now, immediately you think, well, is that fair? Is that right? All this stuff. Well, that's that's all part of a different question. Are we entitled to be chosen? Well, if we're sinners and if we understand sin, and we'll get into that, if we've offended God's holiness and we deserve just his justice applied and deserve judgment, well, then we don't deserve anything. So the fact that he chooses in this initiative of decree, well, like, he is going out of his way. He's going out of his way. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to bother. And he's choosing to set his attention on some. Romans 
Romans 11, it's actually verse 5. <clears throat> So too, there is, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace, but they're chosen. So just, it's just the phrase, chosen by grace. Just the fact God chooses. And of course, then Ephesians 1, 4, kind of a great, you know, chapter, just say Ephesians 4, Ephesians 1, Chapter 1, verse 4, the great chapter on election. Verse 3 of Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And you say, oh, wait, I was cho choosing us in him, and, you know, it, 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 you can't get around. It's a choice. If there's a choice, that means some are chosen, some aren't. There's a choice. Now, the election of individuals unto salvation is the election to which we refer in this connection, Burkhoff says. It may be defined as God's eternal purpose to save some of the human race in and by Jesus Christ. So, it's, it's God making a choice. He's doing something. He's acting. Now, with respect to reprobation, which is the $50 term that sounds really bad, because it is, but the doctrine of election naturally implies that God did not intend to save all. If he purposed to save some, he naturally also purposed not to save others. This is also in harmony with the teachings of Scripture. And there's many texts there. I'll let you look them up. Reprobation may be defined as God's eternal purpose to pass some men by with the operation of his special grace and to punish them for their sin. It really embodies a twofold purpose, therefore, to pass some by in the bestowal of saving grace and to punish them for their sins. Now, I've used, if you got, you've been around uh, me at all, you notice how I often use the analogy in terms of election of thinking about then the particularity and the distinguishing, discriminating love that I set upon my wife. Uh, before she was my wife, I set it upon her to be my wife, which distinguished and discriminated, distinguished her from all other women and discriminated against all other women and setting my love particularly upon her. And that is then the nature of this divine election, setting not only particular attention, but we can actually say particular love upon these chosen. But the element of reprobation adds this. So not only is it discriminating in terms of passing some by, because there's an object, these are the objects of mercy. You, you can spend time in Romans 9 through 11 and look look at, you know, the relationship of the objects of mercy compared to the objects of wrath. And then, so there's, there's this love set upon these elect. But the element of reprobation is also that those who are under judgment remain under judgment. They just stay under judgment, and therefore they are punished for their sins. 
So they are passed by and they remain under the judgment that everybody was under, that everybody deserved, but God chose to set his particular love on the on, on the objects of his grace. So that's that's then looking at that reprobation. Um last. It is sometimes said that the doctrine of predestination exposes God to the charge of injustice. Maybe that was going through your head right now. But this is hardly correct. We could speak of injustice only if man had a claim on God and God owed man eternal salvation. But the situation is entirely different if all men have forfeited the blessings of God as they have. No one has the right to call God to account for electing some and rejecting others. He would have been perfectly just if he had not saved any. And then the text, uh, particularly looking at Romans 9. So you just see the overwhelming goodness of God that he would even bother. And I put it like that just to kind of, because that's kind of how we are. Like we don't, you know, we don't have to do stuff. We don't have to do it. Then we think, well, why bother? I don't have to. He doesn't have to. He could he could have just left us all under judgment. We all it was all a mess. He, he didn't have to bother, but he chose to bother for me. Right? He didn't have to. And if you know yourself trusting in Jesus Christ, knowing yourself as his own child, then you can think, yeah, he bothered for me too. So that's 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 the powerful decree, singular. That's all of it, all is one in this one act of will according to the divine nature, because there's one God. Okay, go ahead. Um, you got you gotta tell your name. Oh, I'm um, maybe this is not too much, but um in with respect to reprobation, is the author exposing then an infralapsarian view? And if so, what what do you think of Well, I didn't really want to go into infralapsarianism and superlapsarianism, but I actually, I would hold to infralapsarianism. And again, it should, it, and if you don't know what that is, don't worry, just ignore it. The, because then it actually shows this kind of asymmetrical engagement on the level of dealing with people in their sin um, versus this kind of philosophical God's God's kind of delighting in damning people, you know, as, as kind of in eternity past, if we can even use that language, he's delighting in damning people on the front end. That's why I said it was asymmetrical. It's actually not, it's not like they're, it's not like yang and yang on that. It's actually, you no, know, this, he created, he said it was all good, but, but he, he creates these, these, these free moral agents, they sin, and then he acts and bestows his, his electing love and these objects of mercy, which, which, and you got to realize the cross, the, the gospel being given 
was an opportunity for God to show and reveal more about himself. And that is how God is so glorified in the gospel, because he was able to, he chose to show more about himself that we would not have known. We would not have known about him. And he, it, was, it was a platform to show things about God so that then we could praise him all the more. It's like the more he shows, like, oh, you're even more awesome. You're even more awesome. I'm going to have to move on. You're going to have to save the questions till after because they're too, they're too awesome. They're too great. Because I've got to offend everybody as we get into creation. And we're going to just be quick. It should, it's not really deserving it, but I'm going to go ahead and charge through. How does God create? Well, if God is without beginning and he chooses to create, it's going to be out of nothing. Because like he's choosing to do it. He's not, he doesn't, there's nothing prior to him. So it's coming from him. So ex nihilo, out of nothing. He also creates angels. Again, we're just, we're not going to really touch on it. The cherubim, the seraphim, the burning ones. No, it's interesting. Gabriel and Michael are noted as having names as angels. Uh, there's good and evil angels, and of course, the fallen angel Lucifer. But then, and I'm not, I'm just gonna basically skip over it, but then how does God create in Genesis 1? There's all kinds of different views on the creation days. I am just going to say that the that Genesis 1 lays out the language of creation in six days. And the six days, morning and evening, again, even God is the one who's defining day. So you can even have the concept of day defined by God before the sun is created. Of course, you remember at the end of the book of Revelation, in the, in the New Jerusalem, there'll be no need for a sun. You, don't, you won't need a sun because you'll live by the light of the Lord. Um, you won't need a sun anymore. So I believe they're, they're true, real days defined by God. And it does make sense that morning and evening is the categories of time that then provide the framework throughout which the rest of the Bible operates. So I also think, uh, I think along with a lot of the early church and theologians throughout history, I think that the earth is relatively young and it's not because Ken Ham says so. Uh, and if you don't know who Ken Ham is, it doesn't matter. Um, but I, but I believe that it's a young earth and, and at the same time, there's mystery there in terms of the mechanics of these things. So the question is whatever theory you come up with and you can talk to me after about your theory and you can argue it with me. Whatever theory you come up with, it has to be so clear that it overcomes the clarity of the taking the days as normal days. Uh, that that's the challenge of any any theory. Uh, it has to overcome the clarity and simplicity of the six day creation as as taken. So. And I've been, I've been there. I've been, I've been through the different views. I've kind of, you know, adopted them at different times earlier on and 
They just don't cut it. Uh, so that's my view and you can argue with me later. Last off, and this is practical because I got to let everybody go. God's providence. And this is very practical because this is God's sovereignty over all causes, including secondary causes. So God preserves us. He preserves the creation. We woke up this morning and we weren't extinguished. You know, you have all these fears of climate change, and all these things. Well, yeah, but God's preserving it all. So, yeah, we might be polluting the skies and doing various things. But, you know, it might be that God's going to kind of keep us together if he wants to keep us together. We're going to keep on living despite our foolishness and our sin. He's going to preserve us by his providence. But also there's divine concurrence is the term. It's that work of God by which he cooperates with all his creatures and causes them to act precisely as they do. It implies that there are real secondary causes in the world, such as the powers of nature and the will of man, and asserts that these do not work independently of God. So uh, the, the decisions of parliament are not independent of God. The law of gravity does not act independently of God. These don't act independently. And of course, over it all is God's divine government. He's orchestrating it all, doing things beyond even our understanding, raising up empires, bringing them down, raising people up, bringing them down, all of these things. And even miracles. A miracle is a supernatural work of God that is a work which is accomplished without the mediation of secondary causes. So God can work directly. Generally, we pray for healing and hope that the drugs and the doctors and healthcare is going to help and somebody's going to be healed. That's generally pray that there be effective means that way. But we also know God could work despite those means and he could work directly and heal. He could act directly. And we would call that in some, that we call that a miracle. Uh, but this is all part of God's providence. And so you're brave. You're further along than me. You can read John Piper's big book on Providence. Jared's further along in it than I am. And last, I'll also mention this is this is Herman Babbing. I think Burkhoff takes Babbing's categories. This is in our library. Uh, this is an excellent systematic theology, and there's multiple volumes. Uh, but also, as we've said, Burkhoff's expanded systematic theology is really helpful on these. I've already gone 15 minutes over time. That's, that's kind of how this goes. I'm going to, I'm going to pray so that we can let people go, but I also, I'm going to open it up after we pray that even as people are shuffling around and getting up to go, if you have questions, you can kind of fire them at me and come up and we'll talk. Um, but I just want to thank you all for coming. Uh, it's been a drink with a fire hose, but I hope that you've been stimulated to study the things of God more. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to shut down. Heavenly Father, we call you Father because you have shown even your fatherly care for us as, a, as just part of your characteristic. But we know and confess that you are truly God. We give you praise the risen Son, we ask that you would continue to intercede for us. You are the risen one, Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son forever. 
please continue to pray for us. And Holy Spirit, you are God. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fill us and give us illumination. The one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you praise today. We ask that you would inform our prayers, teach us to pray. You would help us to think right thoughts about you and that you would be pleased to receive our worship. Expand our understanding, even as we've been challenged and stretched a little bit tonight. And we pray that you would also warm our hearts as we think about you and your greatness. We do ask for your providential care in looking out for us, even as we leave here. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son. Amen. I'll take questions and or criticisms, and uh, we'll go with that. You can get get start the lineup. Hey, Liam. Okay, how's it going? Good. Um, okay. Uh, on uh, on reformation. Yeah. Is everyone that's not saved that due to reformation or? Like, like, uh, let's say, like in Exodus, right? Yeah, it talks about like Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then God hardened his heart. Right? Yeah, so like that'd be like.